0: Listeners, welcome once again to Monster Movie House, the podcast and radio show that is uh, about a love of all things cinema, but particularly genre cinema, as we've said before. Uh, Thank you so much to our sponsors, the University of Tampa and the streaming channel Mascot TV. I am your producer and one of your co-hosts, Chris Vanderkay, and with me as always, fellow scriptwriting professor and fellow fan of weird cinema, Tom Hammond.
1: Hello. Good to have you back. How was your week? It was great. It was great. I saw some uh, great films, and uh, saw a great one last night. I
0: was going to say actually, there's a good segue into introducing our guest because all three of us went to see this movie last night. Um, another guest that we have in studio is Hector Sotomayor, who also works here at UT as a professor, uh, teaches world cinema, and which is germane to our conversation tonight. Hector, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Um, this is going to be, a, uh, I think, it's going to be a blast. So let's talk about first the thing that we all saw last night, which was the um, how do you describe Pontypool
1: without describing Pontypool too much? Uh, well, without giving away the major spoiler of right. the whole thing, uh, it's a uh, uh, it's a unique horror
0: film. It, yeah. it truly is. We could say it was an interesting connection to us because the entire thing takes place in a radio station, similar to the one that we're sitting in right now. Um, and I would say without giving away the plot, the theme of the movie is about uh, the strange messiness and dangerousness of uh, the evolution of language. The way that that uh, changes, the way that we perceive each other, and uh, the way that we communicate with each other, and it's a horror film, and it's kind of a comedy, and
1: it's also super weird. What'd you guys think? I, I know you had seen it before, Tom, right? Yes, I had. I'd had I've never seen it on the big screen. I don't think it has ever played in America on the big screen.
0: Right. It's yeah. a Canadian indie. know, It only cost like a million dollars, so yeah, right. it didn't have a huge. Hector, this was a first time view for you, though, right? It was the first time I, I understood some of the concepts
2: behind the film, but I didn't know. What to expect, but it was an extraordinary experience, especially seeing it in the you know with the group with a with a formal audience.
0: Yeah, the, I, I found the impact to be. I always thought the movie was kind of funny. I didn't realize how deeply funny some of the sections are, the absurdity of it, until you're in a room with 50 other people experiencing that same absurdity, and then you sort of hear externalized what's going on in your head, and you realize that some of the lines really land in, the, in a really darkly funny way that you hadn't.
1: Really thought about when you're sitting watching it by yourself at home. Yeah, hearing the audience reaction, uh, it reminds me of seeing uh, Sunset Boulevard for the first time. I'd seen it many times before, on uh, on small screens, you know, many many times. And I saw it finally with an audience in L.A., and it was funny. I mean, it was there was laughter all the way through. And I said, well, I always knew there was some humor here, some dark humor, but, boy seeing it with an audience really makes a difference.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's true of a lot of Billy Wilder stuff, right? Like you watch Stalag 17, which is like a Uh, You know, uh, an internment camp movie, or you know, like a a prison camp movie. You realize how funny it is. Dark, but like really funny. I mean, that was Wilder's skill, right? Um, But anyway, so yeah, so that was a fun screening, and then we sort of decided we were going to carry the conversation about that over here. But uh, more germane to the conversation at hand, we usually start the show out with. Uh, conversations about physical media acquisitions because it's one of the things that we love, right? It's uh, there's nothing wrong with streaming, but it's nice when you can own a movie because it means no one can ever take it away from you, like Apple TV sometimes does, where you've purchased something or uh, Apple was it uh, Apple Video, you know, you buy right. an episode of a television show or a movie, and then suddenly it's just not there anymore. They credit you the money, but guess what? You don't own the movie anymore. Well, they can't do that when you got a physical copy in your house. So um, starting
1: this week, Tom, why don't you kick it off with that new Criterion title that you have? Wow. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Um, the one that started the zombie craze, right? Mm-hmm. Before then, zombies were always, um, well, they were the product of uh, uh, voodoo. Right. Uh, and this changed everything. This, The zombies in this movie are the product of God knows what. Is never really made clear. You think there's some uh, lip service given to the idea that it may be uh, caused by a, a spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere or something. And, yeah. uh, but it's never confirmed.
0: Oh, for the rest of the, his franchise, he runs far away from anything resembling an explanation.
1: <laughs> and it is uh, how many how many times have you seen *Night of the Living Dead* on? previous uh, previous iterations of it i mean everything from lousy looking copies to yeah well there was the i think it was the 30th anniversary where john russo shot new footage
0: that was fit terribly back in oh. he had bill Heinzman 30 years older playing the same character he did from the original the zombie and he's also 40 pounds heavier and it was it was absurd
1: I think I have the Laserdisc for that, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. And it's
0: it's terrible, but at the same time, it's also like John Russo was one of the creators, and it's public domain, so nobody can stop you from doing anything, you know? This was
1: always at the bottom of the bargain bins. Yeah. There's always a copy down there. This is Criterion, and they've, I mean, the, jo- the job they've done on this is amazing. Uh, the, the, the print is pristine and beautiful, and the shadowing, the darkness, you know, everything's there. Um, it's you realize what a good job these guys really did with what they had. Yeah, I have actually I haven't looked at any of the special features for that, but I did watch the transfer
0: of it. Uh, we did a commentary on it for Other People's Movies, one of the original series on Mascot, and yeah, the print is pristine. It's uh, stunning to see guys who were mostly working in industrial film in Pittsburgh in the mm-hmm. late '60s to mm-hmm. be able to deliver that thing like this amazing relic that just seems like it's always existed. You know.
1: Well, uh, there's a a thing on here called Night of the Anubis, Anubis, which is a, it says, a never-before-presented work print edit of the film. I'll be interested to see that. I haven't watched that
0: one yet. You know, what's funny about that is that was going to be the original title of the movie, and it was when they pulled that and changed it to Night of the Living Dead that they forgot to put the copyright on it, which is why the movie's in the public domain. It was the change in name from Anubis to the Living Dead that caused all of the, uh, all of the movie to go into public domain and just get screened forever for free.
1: Well, they made the right choice in changing the name uh, from that to Living Dead. Well, certainly for the midnight movie certainly. Yeah, and I don't know no, if they're going to see Anubis Films. No, I saw this in the early '70s, a few years after it came out at a midnight screening. Um, this is before Eraserhead, and uh, and they we're going to talk about El Topo too. Right. right yeah, right, but you know, I think it's even before that, right? It came out before that. I don't. Yeah. I don't
0: know when it started the midnight movie circuit, but I wouldn't be shocked. Well, there wasn't out. a
1: regular at the midnight movie. It, it showed up every now and then at midnight movie, and the print that I saw, three reels, all different, obviously from different prints. Some were a couple were great. One was just muddy and awful looking, and yeah. it was really a thrown together kind of deal, and there wasn't any kind of uh, organization to the uh, to the, the visuals. You know, I mean, it had
0: probably been pieced together grindhouse style from several
1: prints that had just been brutalized from getting yeah. sent all over the country. But uh, it was, you know, it was had a it had a power. A friend of mine told me um, uh, you ought to go see this thing. You, you watch this and you realize this is a sort of a cheesy, low-budget film. And then all of a sudden, you're you're watching this thing. and You're going, why am I so disturbed by this? And mm-hmm. in '68, of course, this movie had a tremendous impact. Now it's it's uh, been as far as the graphic violence has been We've gone way beyond. Mm-hmm. That. But in '68, it was. It was highly impactful. Yeah, and well, one year later is the the Wild Bunch, and even I saw that when it came out, and that was uh, a step up. You yeah. know, I mean, they didn't were people eating other people in there, but <laughs> but uh, there was blood bags and 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 uh, yeah. squibs.
0: So that, that was the era of that, Bonnie and Clyde, yep. uh, Night of the Living Dead. The social ramifications of those movies were enormous.
2: It's like the beginning of the, um, like the American New Wave and yeah. then eventually to New Hollywood. What's interesting about that film, though, my experience, because I was much younger, I was born in 71. I was exposed to it because of Saturday Night Live made a, a skit of it. <laughs> Night of the Moonies, I think it was, making fun of the moon culture right. and, and out there and and then, of course, he—I forget the comedian. He was the only African American comedian in SNL at the time. Was that
0: uh, Garrett Morris?
1: Garrett Morris.
2: Garrett Morris. Yeah. So he plays it. the hero, and then and then they come in and they and they shoot him, right? right? Like in the movie, and everyone just there's this long applause, you know. And I didn't know the social ramifications to Night of to the Living then, especially the the tensions between you know the African American hero versus the, the the people that are entrapped in, in that building and. You know, it just—it has so much depth for something that was considered low genre at the time when mm-hmm. it came out.
0: I also think that's an interesting observation I think about all the time, which is when a film becomes such a cultural, cultural touchstone, later generations don't necessarily get the reference from the movie themselves. They get it from people that are making reference to it. I mean, there are so many people that only know Citizen Kane and The Godfather because of references in The Simpsons. You know, mm. they know the reference to the horse's head in the bed right. from The Simpsons before they ever saw God the God. film that it actually came from. So, and this is a similar case, right, you said you saw the Saturday Night Live sketch before yeah, exactly. you saw the film. Yeah. So I wonder sometimes, like, that's amazing because it means it's become a bedrock of culture that everybody's talking about, but at the same time, does it in some way sort of diminish, you know, would it have been more powerful for you to have seen the original before seeing the satire or, you know, who knows? the way right. that things sort of filter into our awareness. But sometimes
2: it has a reverse effect. Sometimes you have that moment where like, oh, that's where they got it from. Right, right? yeah. And then it, all of a sudden it enlightens and that, that kind of that circle is complete. Yeah. Why, what, why, did, why is everyone getting it? I'm not getting it. And right. And then they get it later. It's sort of like
0: when you watch Tarantino film and then you go back and watch, you know, all the movies of the 60s and 70s and go, oh, okay, I could piece this thing together.
1: Yeah, if, <clears throat> if you've been living through the uh, 60s, uh, 1968, this, this movie's a... A reflection of a country that's tearing itself apart, right. you know, uh, splitting down the middle, and of course that's what's going on inside this little farmhouse.
2: Right, the images yeah. of Vietnam, the violence, mm-hmm, of images of dead people. The famous, was it the the naked girl running in Vietnam, and what's the other photo? The shooting in the head. The shooting the head. That's the moment something.
1: the bullet enters. Yeah, you know?
2: we're seeing this, you know, you know, before our eyes, and, and maybe Romero is saying something that this world of chaos, what's happening? You know, what's what's you know, what are we really doing? And of course dawn of the dead um is another level of it you know yeah. looking at what becomes really a criticism kind of a preface of what the 80s really becomes is very consumer enriched rich culture
0: yeah yeah he was always prescient i feel like one of the one of the, his curses was that the thing he had to say was super important after his movie had already come out and nobody saw it, you know? <laughs> right. He had this thing where he was about four or five years ahead of his zeitgeist. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely,
2: yeah. Um,
0: so speaking of, uh, so that's a fantastic print of oh, yeah. a classic film, which segues well into uh, a film that I wanted to talk about this week, which is, uh, I don't know if a, a fantastic print is the right term, because Wild Eye Releasing has released a couple of, uh, well, they gave us uh, several titles to put into our library, but this one I wanted to talk about for two reasons. One, it connects to Night of the Living Dead, um, in that it's called Night of the Living Dead Reanimated. And the concept is awesome. Because the film is public domain, Not a Living Dead, uh, a filmmaker, a producer, decided, I want to remake the entire film in short animated segments that I'm going to crowdsource. Wow. Meaning anybody can claim a certain number of seconds of the movie, three, four seconds. They're going to animate it in whatever style they want. And then they submit it. We put it all together into one big film with the original audio behind it. And it's as if the film has been remade by all of these different animators from all over the world, recreating two to three seconds of it. So there's like claymation, there's stop motion, there's um, uh, you know cell animation. There's all kinds of sequences of different animation styles, and it's it's pretty stunning. It's pretty fantastic concept. It's one of the first crowdsourced movies I'd ever seen. You know, where they basically just called out for anybody who had the time and effort to put it in could do a segment. You know. Uh, which I think is great. But the other thing, I, reason I wanted to talk about this is we talk about physical media acquisitions. This is, you can see it other ways. I saw it on Amazon, but they released a special VHS edition of this, which I think is fantastic because so many of the, uh, I'm sure all of us probably saw Night of the Living Dead on VHS, some terrible VHS copies, how we saw it first. So the idea that this is sort of an homage to that, I think is pretty great. But I highly recommend this movie just as a sort of a fascinating artifact and also sort of a, a way of seeing his influence on how many different people were affected by it and also how they interpret his work, you know? Even in the three or four seconds of the animation that they did.
1: Is it possible to uh, buy standalone VHS players today? Good question. I know they
0: usually combine with DVD players. Yeah, and usually what ends up happening is it goes away for a short time, and then the sort of like the analog nostalgia returns, like you can buy record players now for a time you couldn't. Mm -hmm. I've got a feeling if they're not available now, they will be readily available soon Mm -hmm. as people recognize how many things are no longer, well, you can't get them on any other format. You can't stream them. They're not on Blu-ray or DVD. The only copy you'll ever be able to get is a VHS. Um, More people are going to want to get VHS players to be able to access those movies that they otherwise won't ever be able to see, you know. Um, but the other title that they have that is also, it's a VHS special release, but they also have it on DVD and Blu-ray, is a movie called High 8 Do you guys remember, uh, it would have been, I don't know, maybe not not quite a decade ago, maybe it was 2006, somewhere, somewhere in there, uh, the VHS series, the horror anthology series that was shot as if they were found footage, and it was segments by famous filmmakers shooting found footage well this is called High Eight, it's Horror Independent Eight and it came out right around the same time and this the producer said Well, they're having a bunch of indie filmmakers make found footage films. I want to go to all of the luminaries of what they call the shot-on-video era, you know, late 80s, 90s, when everybody was making stuff direct-to-video, shooting on video. And so a lot of the names, like uh, the one that sticks out to me, I I specifically remember as a filmmaker, is uh, Brad Sykes. He made the Camp Blood series. But there's a lot of names on here, Donald Farmer, uh, Ron Bonk. These are guys that were putting out copious amounts of straight-to-video titles and they, uh, the producer said, I want each of you guys to make a segment for this anthology horror film that's shot on, on video, sort of harkening back to the era, the same way that VHS was harkening back to um, the VHS era. So the idea was, these aren't found footage, they're just shot on video, but it's it's kind of fun, it's sort of an old throwback, which is why, again, they released it on VHS because it has that vibe of, I think, are, are all three of us old enough that we went to video stores and saw titles that oh, never yeah. went to theaters? They only came straight to video because, you know, some local guy created the thing and then convinced one video chain to carry that
1: movie for them, you know. Ron Bonk, isn't he the guy that did My Sweet Satan? He may have been. I remember, uh, was it (laughs) Strawberry States? I don't remember. Okay, because that's like definitely VHS. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And there was, I mean, it was an enormous uh, industry. The the shot on video industry was gigantic in the era when uh, little mom-and-pop video stores couldn't afford to get some of the gigantic titles, but they still wanted to fill their store. right? Yeah. You get 10, 15, 20 horror titles from some guy that's selling them out of the trunk of his car, you filled your shelf at least, you know?
2: That was a surreal era, too. Like, my father purchased in 1982 the first portable um, VHS, which back then was, you know, thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there was only one store, and I used to walk to school, but every time I came home, I used to stop at the store. But you have... You have like, you know, Disney stuff and old stuff and horror and porn all in the same, <laughs> in the same row. You know, they didn't have a way to divide the genre because it was such a, a new technology, a new thing.
0: Yeah. No, that's interesting. The idea, I mean, obviously genres existed as an idea, but the idea of dividing up content, I mean, we'd never had a place where you did it. A movie theater only ever had like three four movies at the time. So it's not like you had to divide them into theaters. It was just like whatever was new. So when a video store came about, yeah, there was that growing pain of like, do we just literally throw everything out on the floor and let people sort through it? Is well, it alphabetical? Like, how do we do it? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating era that I feel like, um, is is hasn't been logged very properly. Like we all just remember it, so we haven't really done any sort of uh preservation in the sort of uh curatorial sense. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see in, in future generations whether or not this is remembered.
1: Well the first uh the first big division was porn. And that was at least when I lived in LA, it was always behind the, the beaded curtain
0: right you go in the other room or the locked door that had yeah. the key with the big stick on it so everyone knew that you were going back to the yeah to the naughty
1: room right? yeah and yeah. Uh, that, that everything else was thrown out there but the, there was so much porn that was at a its own separate room yeah and well and also
0: part of it was that you know right. they want the family audience so they need to <laughs> segregate that so that parents can let their kids wander around and look at all the titles out in the main area mm-hmm. right Um, So well, okay. So those were the two titles I did. You did Night of the Living Dead, and uh, Hector, you brought a a title with you, didn't you? So we're we're
2: studying Asian cinema. We we started our semester about six weeks of Euro Eurocentric films. So now we're spending time in the continent of Asia, and we're watching South Korean cinema and. I wanted to purchase the trilogy, the Vengeance Trilogy, by uh, by Parchan Wook. Um, and we're going to see Old Boy, but I purchased the full trilogy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy being the second installment, and the final Lady Vengeance.
0: Yeah, so. which, it's a fantastic trilogy. Obviously, Old Boy is the one that uh, I think got the most traction of the three titles in the States. And certainly because it had a remake from Spike Lee, it probably has more of an awareness than the other two do but I think all three of them have fascinating um, facets to them even though they're all vengeance films they're all revenge films they all have a really interesting perspective on the way that they look at the idea of revenge so right, I think it's interesting right. he can take that same basic existential theme and find three really interesting takes on it
2: and there's something about the revenge genre especially the era of John was it John Wick yeah you know they, it's something that's we never it's one of the oldest narratives right? in the beginning of like of the human condition, something about something that you were wrong and want to right the wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we gravitate no matter what culture or whatever you are. It's a genre everyone understands. And they, and whenever I show Old Boy, even though it's a dense story, at least the gist of it, the simplicity of the narrative, um, people really gravitate towards it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, uh, most revenge stories pretty much have the same bone structure as uh, your standard Greek tragedy, right? Which mm-hmm. is like a, a circumstance where someone is affected horribly by someone in their lives and then they decide... Do I go the high route or do I go the low route? And, of course, they choose the <laughs> low route. Because the irony, of course, of the revenge film is that it's a really fun movie to watch that's telling you not to do something, making that something look I mean, really absolutely. cool. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a fun genre. Is there any, any cool special features? Or I mean, I love South Korean cinema, so anytime I can learn a little bit more about it, I'm always interested to do so.
2: Um, it has some elements to it, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's really... Um, just looking at um, what's beautiful about Old Boy, I don't know if that's the right word, what's fascinating about Old Boy is its multicultural, transnational element of how it connects so many ideas of the West and the East. And even though everyone is watching it, like you said before, they, they're watching for this gratuitous violence in the, in the simple story, but in many ways it's really, you know, a story about what's fascinating about revenge is the story that there's a kind of this imperfection about themselves, about their own condition, that they feel... You know they were that they were attacked, and they want to take their revenge on them. But in reality, there's something about them. Um, the reason why they were attacked, that there's something imperfect about them. That they're in many ways, they're the reason why um, something why someone attacked them. And I find that kind of reciprocating those dynamics is interesting. Yeah,
0: it's also interesting because that feeds back into the classic American film noir, right? Which is that. When something bad befalls you, it's usually because of some internal weakness that you had and some terrible decision that you made that brought it about. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I do feel like sometimes you get that, I don't know what you call it, sort of that weird convergence, like that echoing of, uh, it's its not film noir, it's very, it's very distinctly its own thing, South Korean cinema. But when you look at titles like that, or I Saw the Devil, how they're all in some ways whether intentional or not, echoing a specific generation of films that came out in America from 1940 to 19 late, late 1950s, you know?
2: Yeah, it's kind of this post-traumatic moment, like film noir the post-World War II. There's kind of this, this existential moment in, in our history about our value. The value system is broken, you know, and, and a police officer is usually something of honoring the codes of conduct that can, that kind of maintains our society, but in, in many ways he discovers that there are many evil like, evil is not really black and white. It's a lot of greyness that's there. And I think mean, that's some of the hard kind of the hardships of those stories, that they, they can't really realize that the world is much more difficult. Quote maybe a uh, renoir that there really isn't evil in the world, that everyone has their reasons.
0: Right. Well and sometimes people's downfall is that they're a grey person who likes to think they're either black or white. And that's maybe Part of the problem, right, is they right. don't recognize the nuance. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so fantastic group of uh, physical media, all of which I would recommend that you pick up if you haven't seen or don't own. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. We're going to talk about the, uh, the big picture conversation of the day, which is going to be magic realism and how the idea of magic realism ties into the films of Alejandro Jodorowsky, Luis Buñuel, and Guillermo del Toro. We'll be right back. Do you love watching classic and cult films the more obscure odd or forgotten the better do you miss the experience of tuning into a live tv broadcast with fun retro advertisements and original programming that celebrates the unusual and entertaining film and television of the past then you should be watching mascot tv a streaming tv channel that's like the masterpiece theater of exploitation cinema it's available as a channel on roku and apple tv or you can watch it online at mascottv.net. So visit the website and take a trip back in time to the best and weirdest that Hollywood's past has to offer on Mascot TV. And so we return magically to have a conversation about magic realism here on Movie Monster House. Um, so I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but not everybody knows what magic realism is, right? When I, when I got into college, I had heard the term, but didn't really have a clear definition of what it meant. So maybe before we talk about these filmmakers and how they utilize magic realism, uh, it might be worth having a conversation about what that even means, what our definition is of it. Because I know there's probably a specific textbook definition, but uh, you know, I, I feel like more than most other genres, this one is a little bit nebulous. So um, I'm curious, from both of your perspectives, where do you land on, like, how do you describe magic realism if someone's to ask you?
2: I think the, uh, um, if you look back um, of, of like, a pre-magical period, um, you could look at, like, the works of, like, Franz Kafka is probably one of the, like, the metamorphosis, Mm -hmm. a man wakes up as an insect, as a roach, Um, but I even go far back to maybe, like, Gogol, the nose, the Russian writer about a man who wakes up without his nose, that type of surreality. Mark Twain's a Connecticut Yankee, King Arthur's Court. You, know, you have this anachronistic character that finds himself um, into the past, of the medieval past. Um, you can look at mythology, folklore, fairy tales. All these things have these this balance of the real and the fantastical. Um, but I think um, in, the, in a modernist sense, um, the Franz Rowe, the, the uh, German a writer talked about this kind of post-expressionist period um, that really spawns off to surrealism. Surrealism is kind of this descendant of expressionism um, and to some extent romanticism coined the term that there's this otherness known as, he's calling it as magical real. Um, but I go back further because it's always associated to Latin American literature mm-hmm. and that's really, that's kind of the duality of where it's It's both worldly but also affiliated heavily and with ownership to latin literature and i think some of it has to do really i always go back to cervantes and and quixote right and and this this amazing story um about you know this knight this elderly knight who can't really understand his reality only the imaginary his imaginary world is truly his what he finds is real and the people around him are trying to ground him back to this reality so that duality of of the real and the imaginary are at odds with one another and i think the the most famous scene is the the windmill and he thinks they're giants or dragons and he right. tries to bring him down and i think that that whole element of him his inability to understand that real and the imaginary maybe this coping mechanism you could also look at um, at, at Don Quixote and that uh, the antagonism he has with these machines as maybe the reality of the pre-modern era in Europe. Europe is changing, things are happening and and him being this individual of the past, of the old, holding on. There's something about the past that we view as pristine, as as pure and we hold on to. We always think life was better in the past and I think that that kind of element between um, the modern and the old is really the true story of it and I think that the fact that it is so relevant in Latin American culture because it is a Spanish language story, though it's not Latin American, right. um, the, the the story is well known in Latin America because of its language. It's the greatest literature and part of the earliest form of literature. You know, in English, you have so much with Shakespeare and these other great, you know, Victorian writings. It's really just you know Don Quixote, and then you don't really find anything relevant to A Hundred Years of, of Solitude, you right. know, by Marquez, the magical real masterpiece. So I think, in terms of its origins, um, in terms of Latin America, I think that the the reality and the fantasy, and then another step to why it's connected, maybe to Latin American culture, is that um, the uh, this post colonial identity that they that they're I don't know the word suffering we're trying to um, still make sense of the idea that these Western Advanced powers come into this kind of tribal world mm, yeah. that also has this weirdness of this is a real world you know this their reality is also um, they come in with this these group of people who seem to be of the future and right. I think that maybe also embedded of this the advancement of the new world and the old world also at odds and then that might be embedded and still unresolved um, in the in the reality. Um, one other key point I think is fascinating, and, and I'll let you guys talk uh, about it, be that the Latin America never really um, endured like the Industrial Revolution or the Enlightenment, um, World War II. You know, they, it, this is like really the first thing, this first kind of enlightened, you know, modernist or postmodern, which is morally associated of uh, of literature. That why it's gravitated so much in Latin American kind of culture and Latin uh, literature.
1: I was reading a <clears throat> part of Louis Bunwell's uh, autobiography, and he talks in there about growing up in Spain and being so grateful that he lived in the Middle Ages until the revolution began. Until the you know, and he said, "I was I, my where I lived was the Middle Ages, and the revolution came, or the, 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 the civil war, right? Yeah, it's about and the that Civil was, War, yeah, though. and that uh, that jolted us out of it." But he said, "This is the greatest thing." I grew up until, until I was about seventeen. I lived in the Middle Ages, you know. That's
0: really interesting. One of the things you said, I think, sort of can be boiled down to the idea that a lot of magical realism is the um, the absurd invading the mundane. And what you said about culture, I think, is really interesting. The idea that there would be a culture that was uh, largely untouched and unaltered, that hadn't gotten to, like you said, uh, uh, any sort of technological revolutions that then suddenly had, there was no internal exploration of that. It literally was just dumped on them from without. And so, in some ways, that perfectly mirrors the idea of magical realism, which is an an absolutely, I don't want to say mundane world, but a a world everyone recognizes and takes as rote. And then a, a strange circumstance that is largely unexplainable, inexplicable, comes into it. And yet it still has to just be accepted as part of life, because this is how it is now. And uh, I think that's interesting when you also look at other elements of culture that have come about as a result of, like, the Spanish influence on, if we talk about Mexico, for instance, the idea of things like Dia de los Muertos is this interesting embracing of uh, a Spanish religious tradition added to the everyday that they already had as part of their religious beliefs, you know? They just sort of had to merge because that's how it had to work, you know? We have new people in charge, they brought new things, we just got to incorporate it into our lives. And then out of it comes this. Um, festival in this belief system that is so much about the supernatural and the uh, uh, the sort of I guess you would call it preternatural, the unusual existing side by side with the everyday. You know, I think there's there's something interesting to that uh, that take that uh, it really is, is colonialism that led specifically to this idea.
2: I think that leads also to the indifference of the stories, right? The, the reality doesn't seem to be um, disrupted by these fantastical moments. You know, right. these the spirits or the, time travel um time and space non-linear um, cyclical narratives um that the uh that the reality is just accepted they accept these things they don't question it. i think that's if there's any defining kind of uh agent that really defines magical realism is that um is that they don't really question the surreality of the world they 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 tend to accept it when you look at uh, the american films that have come out like a uh, um midnight in paris um mm-hmm. when uh, Was it Wilson? Um, He goes, he walks at midnight, and after midnight, his dream is to meet Hemingway, to meet Fitzgerald, to meet um, Dali in Paris in the era of Picasso and that golden era of the 1920s. And after midnight, all of a sudden he finds himself um, in this in this world. And immediately, you know, there's this kind of a little bit of what what just happened, but he embraces it, right? He doesn't really disrupt it. and doesn't even want to question why it's happening. And I think that's really maybe the the underbelly of what really defies magical real, the indifference of both worlds. Oh,
0: for sure. I, I actually even think you could see the influence on what would be consider more traditional genres like horror and, and science fiction. Uh, I think of the example of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a series. One of the things they did that at the time seemed to undercut our expectations as viewers was actually embracing an aspect of magical realism, which is, there's a sequence where um, Buffy has to tell one of her friends that vampires exist, right? And so she's getting ready to sit her down and she says, I need to tell you something. And the friend goes, is this about the vampires? Yeah, no, I know. Like the idea that in this world, they're just somehow ready to believe stuff that no one else in the real world would believe. Like they're just willing to go along with this absurdity. And and to a degree, it's a smart writing tactic because then you don't have to have that sequence where you have to convince the friend that's a skeptic to believe, everybody just does. But I feel like it builds off of that sense you're talking about for magical realism, which is that an outlandish thing can happen, but it's just, the world is just somehow gonna sort of shrug its shoulders and keep going. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting thing that maybe Magical realism doesn't get enough credit for actually having influence in some ways because we don't think of film and television made by Joss Whedon as mm-hmm. particularly magical realism, but it's definitely influenced by it.
1: Well, it's accepted without, without, uh, with a shrug of the shoulders, with, without question. Right, right, exactly. It's just uh, part of the, in other words, there's no, uh, the idea that there's nothing really supernatural. Uh, the things that we call supernatural or magic are th- simply things we just don't understand.
0: Yeah. And in magical realism, the fact that they don't care that much is what keeps them a mystery, right? Like right. in a fantasy film, you go to try and figure out where the magic comes from. In science fiction, you try to figure out what the technology is that's causing it. In magical realism, we've just accepted it as a thing that's happening in our everyday life and we'll all just get used to it. And that sort of in some way preserves the mystery that ends up being solved in fantasy or science fiction. And so I kind of like the idea that in some ways, magical realism is about not wanting to destroy that mystery of what the thing is.
2: It's like uh, in a few of the dreams when uh, when towards the end of the film, one of the fathers, one of, the, one of his friends doesn't understand what they're looking at. And all of a sudden they see the little girl and then all of a sudden um, the doctor was a Burt Lancaster comes out of this universe and he pops up and then all of a sudden all the players are there. And then the guy goes, Wow, where they come from? You know, that's kind of a, as far as it goes when it comes to trying to figure it out. Oh, where they come from, and and that's it. You know, yeah. that's that's their kind of resolution. But they don't really want to know. They don't really, and we don't really need to know. I right. Guess, right.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately the ambiguity of of what's happening is part of what's important about it. Right. Like if we had the answer, we wouldn't any, we wouldn't be as fascinated by it. If the end of it, you gave me a pat answer for how this all solves itself, I'm nowhere near as interested as if I get to walk away with that mystery forever existing. You know. Yeah, it just
2: adds life to it, uh, the, these cognitive uh, gaps of trying to figure out why these things are happening just adds so much depth because we as people always want to find answers, right? And magical realism does not provide those answers, and I think that's why it's still even more relevant you know, even now, especially films like Birdman or other more kind of neo-magical real films that are coming out.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I definitely think as uh, and we you know we could actually talk about this that um, Hector and I have been talking about trying to make a documentary about uh, Hispanic genre film in the history of the United States and one of the big things we've realized is that magical realism is is uh, like this uh, connective tissue that actually is has a huge amount of influence in so many genres now that people don't even recognize it's a part of and in some ways I think that's the most interesting legacy that a lot of Hispanic film has had in the states is that that influence is there uh, so clearly to people who understand it but even to people who don't, they're still experiencing it and appreciating it you know, that influence reaches pretty far yeah, I, in, Indeed,
2: I think another thing is this idea of like uh, of time, time is also an interesting concept, um, when you think of Borges and his novels, that time is infinite and there's something about maybe this post-colonial identity that the origins of this identity is debatable, where do they really come from um, but this themes of labyrinths and time um, finding their way with mystery and knowledge is maybe a way of trying to figure out who they really are. Are they Western? Or are they not? Are they, you know, mm. South American or whatever you want to call it? And I think, um, I think why the, the, the genre has found life. Um, for for such a long time. And then, of course, who's the later one? Uh, Isabel Allende? Allende, Allende, yeah. Yeah, for uh, House of Spirits. She's also, and she's interesting because she migrated to the United States, escaping the atrocities, I think, of Colombia. And her take is also a view of this kind of maybe kind of post post-colonial like looking looking at it through um, through um, like American eyes and I think that um, the genre especially in this global world that the, the genres kind of find its way in this kind of kind of transnational way
0: yeah well that's actually a great segue into the three filmmakers we wanted to talk about because I think actually all three of the guys we're talking about today Guillermo del Toro Luis Buñuel and Alejandro Jodorowsky, all of them have a uh, a multinational experience to their lives. Guillermo del Toro, born in Mexico, ended up moving to the United States, where he does a lot of his films. Uh, Jodorowsky, I believe, uh, lived in France, lived in a couple of different places, made his films, and Buñuel, famously, had to leave his home country and make films in Mexico for like 30 years or something, right? So he they went all back uh, briefly to uh, Spain with the uh, and right. was kicked out again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's <laughs> right. a repeat offender. Um, but yeah, so they all have, like you're talking about, that idea of the transnational experience of, in some ways, I wonder if, uh, Uh, as we talked about, the idea of colonialism leading to it, but there's also like a a personal aspect of um, uh, various cultures sort of being dumped together and creating this melange of experience, you know, Um, that you have the European sensibilities that Buñuel had and then also coupled with uh, Spain and then also coupled with Mexico, you know, and um, all of that coming together to create a genre that has pieces of all those other genres, but is its own distinct thing. Um, so who's the who's the best one to dive into first? I mean, Buñuel's the one was around first, so maybe he's the one to start with, right? Well, he's uh,
1: uh, always referred to as a surrealist. And right. It would be interesting to see the difference between surrealism and magic realism, because I know that's something that's that's uh, not necessarily debated, but it's it's no. discussed a lot. Yeah, you know? I agree.
2: I, I think there's. I, I think if you were to create kind of a linear path of understanding where magic realism finds life, I think. Um, it's distant cousin, if you want to call it that. It's kind of its, uh, its irrational cousin is probably surrealism, because surrealism um, and its irrational behavior. You, know, you have this kind of very eccentric movement that's trying to analyze the nature of the unconscious, the subconscious. Right. All these kind of Freudian, you know, ideas. Um, the famous, they gave. It was it was in 1900 where Freud wrote the interpretation of dreams, and I think Dali had been. Um, vocal about how that book inspired um, the art form, even though the face, or at least if there's any kind of facilitator of the genre, um, is uh, André uh, Breton, who wrote the Manifesto of Surrealism. Right. Um, so all these images that are finding their way through Germany, England, France, and in Spain, it's finding its way through Europe. But for whatever reason, in terms of cinematic um, surrealism, Bunel is the one that, Bunel and Dolly, with Usha which right which I'm sure you guys have seen, and of course the most influential short film that you still watch today and still has a, a this, this incredible power of, of, of ambiguity and, and sexuality, identity. There's so much happening in, what, 16 minutes of footage.
0: Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's interesting because you brought up the idea of uh, magical realism and surrealism. The way I usually just delineate the two is that one is about everything being absurd and one is about a single thing being absurd. Right? Like the sure. idea that everything is about the unconscious, which means nothing has to make linear, clear, practical sense. The other, magical realism, is about what if only one thing was like that and everything else was normal? And in some ways, what that does is that points the finger towards the one thing, and then what does that represent? As opposed to everything in surrealism representing something else, here it becomes more allegorically about one thing and how we interact with it and what it means.
1: Well, if that's the case, uh, uh, the exterminating angel and Mm. the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and all these where, where the one thing is the inability or as you called it what the uh, yeah i call basically the world conspiring to deprive deprive deprivation right, right? right and it's just one thing that's wrong right, right. and the rest of the world is absolutely every day yeah it's normal i actually <laughs> i literally just can't eat, eat dinner yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: or no, i can't leave this room right or, right, right or something like that i literally made a list of the i think there's maybe five of them of the booney royal well films where that's true right what are they being deprived of uh, in the Golden Age, it's the two people trying to ha- and being unable to consummate, right? Being right. able to have sex. Right. Um, the Land Without Bread, the f- sort of uh, fake documentary he made is literally unable to make or eat bread because of the poverty. Um, Death in the Garden is about being unable to find safety. The Exterminating Angel, which you mentioned, is literally being unable to leave a party, leave a building. Um, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, we're just unable to get food. And the, and the interesting thing is that in every single one, there's no explanation for where this deprivation is coming from. It's as if the world has conspired against these characters, but in a way that they and we don't understand.
1: And there's uh, uh, that obscure object of desire, where he's un- uh, unable to consummate the relationship of his, with his woman. He's absolutely obsessed with. Yeah,
2: I think we could go and loop in. I hate to bring in religion, but Catholicism. Me being <laughs> raised a Catholic, this idea of suppressing or controlling our our human instincts, our human desires, and he's you know, it is food, right, or sex. These things that really. Give us life you know that 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 defines our humanity are are limited especially when these strict codes of conduct if you've grown up in, in in catholicism i think maybe it could be a response to that and there's also this this um the moment where franco comes into power and this kind of patriarchal you know absolute power that also has these issues about Anything that that defies, you know, his value system. Yeah, and I think and these things are finding its way into Brunel's work.
0: It's it's fascinating. You brought up the idea of religion and repression because I feel like that's a conversation all three of these filmmakers are having with um, religious iconography and religious discussion. All three: Jodorowsky, um Buñuel, and Del Toro all toy around with particularly Catholic iconography, um, although. Jodorowsky I think, a little more welcoming of pretty much any belief system. I do think it's interesting. Jodorowsky is the only one that would consider himself particularly a believer, though. I think both del Toro and Buñuel at some point I left agree. the church and were critical of it, whereas Jodorowsky, I think, not necessarily the church itself, but the idea of belief and, and the divine is something that is really important to him. So I, I do think it's interesting that that's... Maybe not of everybody's magic realism work, but of these three filmmakers, they certainly have that element in common, as do Buñuel, you said, was talking about um, Franco. And I think more than one del Toro film actually discusses the idea of the Spanish Civil War and uh, post-Spanish, was it um, The Devil's Backbone? It was and Backbone. The Pan's Labyrinth. The Pan's Labyrinth, right, exactly, yeah. Both of those movies are uh, in some ways brilliantly portraying the idea of the mundane and the everyday. I hate to use the word mundane in reference to war, but I mean like the idea that that's their mundane and everyday reality. Right. In both of those movies, juxtaposed against whatever that fantasy element is, which is the the labyrinth of the fawn or in that case the the ghost of the boy that lives yeah. in, the, in the basement. Yeah. So there is that element of taking, like we said, the everyday sort of the um, the uncomfortable drab reality that we live in, and then that one element that makes it stand out from everything.
2: And it's funny he looks back at that, um, and there's some kind of purity about a. Um, about Dol Toro, who's trying to find um, his Latin roots. You know, to, he he meditates those two films in Spain, and um, and I think this is something about those who are products of post-colonialism. Um, it's this thing of identity. I know it's an overused term, but but you're you're, you're West, but you're not. You're, you're you're something that you're not, and and uh, there's some kind of soul searching about maybe Dol Toro when you look at um, The Devil's Backbone and and Pan's Labyrinth, and how. Um, that Spain may have suffered from its own sense of identity. Maybe this identity had been halted as you mentioned before, when after, was it World War One or World War Two, Brunel said he just came out of the Middle Ages or something like that? It was
1: after World War One. it was the uh, yeah, It uh, up until he was 17 years old, he'd lived in the Middle Ages.
2: And he had these liberties that they'd never had before, um, but then this is taken away again. It's taken after away, after
1: absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, He's deprived of it. Yeah. 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 And his life changes, and then it... Uh, uh, it, uh, it becomes something that he is uh, reacting to, you know, in a, uh, his reaction to the church, for instance, he, uh, he said that, uh, he, uh, of course he wore his atheism proudly, mm. but, uh, uh, friends would always ask him to be in, in their films mm-hmm. and he'd say, only if I can play a priest because <laughs> <laughs> he, he would anger the church so much right. that, that Boonwell was playing a priest. Right. That's funny. Especially that kind of ties in with Jodorowsky literally was a priest.
0: Uh, I think he was actually the one who officiated uh, Marilyn Manson's wedding. So, yeah, interesting. There's interesting connective tissue between these filmmakers. As far as other things, I was thinking about the fact that there's a connection between all three um, that tap into sort of the odd and specific world of magic realism in the way that they look at the world free of their work. Uh, The first thing I noticed is that Buñuel, aside from being a filmmaker, was an accomplished hypnotist which I think is interesting because that's all about trying to put people into a different state of consciousness. Um, Guillermo del Toro is a lucid dreamer. He's talked about that before, the idea that when he goes to sleep, he has control over his dreams and what happens in them. So in some sense, that's an interesting idea of the the mundane meeting the fantastic, meaning Guillermo del Toro, as he is in real life, goes into the dream state and is able to control it there. But it's still him, you know, like the way we're not able to in dreams. If we're not lucid dreamers. And the last one is that Jodorowsky is a trained tarot card diviner mm-hmm. and a psychomagician. Right. So, uh, which, uh, yeah, a psychomagician is a person who works to heal the unconscious mind. So I think it's interesting that all three of them have uh, deep interests outside of magical realism as a film that in some way feel like they kind of tap into what they're getting at with magic realism in their film.
2: Yeah, I think the uh, for, for, uh, for Alejandro, um, in terms of magical realism that the world, there is no really reality that's happening in his films. I think the, it's a reverse of magical realism, that it's a surreal world where reality is trying to find its way in there. Like, these westerns are like surreal western, right? And Holy Mountain is a surreal fantasy, while um, Santa Sangre is a surreal horror film. And these right. things are kind of, when we look at the real world, these are genres that we understand in real time but but they find its way into this like the the surreality of his universe
0: yeah that's interesting i mean you could argue santa sangra because the story isn't told entirely from uh, an insane person in an asylum that what we're watching is a broken mind trying to repair itself by understanding what's happened to it so yeah like you said it's an insane world that an insane person is looking at and trying to make sense of so it's like you said the world is the absurdity And his character is trying to reorganize it, trying to um, put order to the chaos that is his own insanity. The absurd is the
2: reality. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, It's really interesting. Jodorowsky is the one of the three that I've seen the least about, but I did see the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune. Did you guys get a chance to watch that? I did.
2: I've seen some of it. It's fascinating what what could have happened. Yeah. And uh, and again that's a surreal that would have been a surreal science fiction film. That would have been another kind of that duality.
1: With Orson Welles as uh, Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. Well, And And,
2: Dali,
0: right? Dali was going to be in it. They were going to pay him something like $100,000 for every minute of screen time that he had or something. Um, But I I do think it's interesting that we we brought up uh, Dune because uh, he was originally going to make Dune. He did not end up being able to make it. Uh, because the budget ballooned and it just became problematic. The person that did end up making it, you know, the surrealist, David Lynch, another surrealist, and also a person who, along with Jodorowsky, was in some ways responsible for the midnight movie uh, circuit that we were talking about earlier with *Night of the Living Dead*. It was really *El Topo*. Um, Night of the Living Dead, e- Eraser Head, and then I think, obviously, some of early uh, John Waters stuff also e- falls into that. You add Rocky,
2: Rocky Horror. Right, Rocky, and Rocky Horror. Pink, Pink yeah. Flamingos,
0: really, with right, John Waters. Right, Pink Water. Flamingos. Yeah. Um, so and I think it's interesting that of all of those movies, many of them are sort of like underground punk anarchic movies. <laughs> and then you have El Tempo, which is vastly different from all of those other titles in in ways that... Um, I think it, it's it's the movie is obviously confrontational, but not in the same sort of like uh, violent... Uh, uh, direct sort of blunt way that the other ones are, you know, some of the other ones are sort of more graphic, and that one is very sort of lyrical and poetic in a way that those other ones aren't. So I think it's interesting that it was included in that group.
2: Because we think about cult films and think of it as low art, and for but for Alejandro, his work is like at times super high art. It's beautiful aesthetic qualities and color and texture, and then it goes the vulgarity and then the violence and right. the grotesque. Really, just kind of goes back and forth between kind of low genre in high genre.
0: Yeah, I definitely think Santa Sangra is a perfect, if you haven't done anything from Jodorowsky, that's a great place to dive in because it's, I feel it's probably as clear as narrative as far as like, here's the plot of a story that happened, but also it's the perfect balance of what you're talking about, which is the the beauty and the horror sort of uh, distinctly stacked against each other, you know, where you can see an image that is gorgeously rendered and also, Terribly haunting or horrifying at the same time. Um, Which is something that you can't necessarily say of all of the other Midnight movies. Obviously, there's some beauty to er Eraserhead, but I don't know that anybody watches Pink Flamingos because of its beauty.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, there's something. Interesting about Pink Flamingos. Oh, for watching, sure. Or yeah. any John Waters. Yeah, any John Waters experience, especially in the theater.
0: Yeah, uh, not to cast aspersions on John Waters. I love him, but yeah, I just do think I do think that those are films that seem like they're uh, they're both midnight movie circuit films, but re- at, at maybe perhaps at cross purposes as far as what they were intending to elicit from their audiences. You know. Yeah, right. right, right. Um, so jumping back to Buñuel, I, I think it's interesting. We talked about it uh, that. Uh, Buñuel has this experience of he's actually connected to all of the places that are kind of responsible for the birth of magic realism because Spain, as we talked about um, being uh, the birthplace of Miguel Cervantes' work but also Spain was the one that invaded Uh, uh, Latin America. They brought their beliefs and their culture over and it sort of crashed headlong with what was happening there. So in some ways, Spanish influence there is also a cause. So Buñuel had Spain, he worked in Europe and he worked in Latin America and Mexico. So he's one of the only people that we're talking about here that has a a very
1: direct connection to all of the pieces that build magical realism. I watched uh, uh, a couple of his uh, uh, Mexican melodramas and comedies Mm -hmm. and you know, they uh, talk about the mundane world. I mean, it's it's straight away. It's like uh, mm-hmm. illusion travels by streetcar, for instance. Right, 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 right. Is there's nothing supernatural about the movie at all? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's magical. I mean, it is uh, the the imagery. You know, is uh, the the at some point these these two completely drunk guys that their streetcar is going to be decommissioned, and so they decide they're going to take it out for one last run, mm-hmm. and they're they're. They're drunk to you know as drunk as you can be. They take them out. They take it out and they pick up people along the way, not wanting to, but people just get on the streetcar. Mm-hmm. And at some point, they go by the slaughterhouse, and all the people, all the workers from the slaughterhouse come out and get on the streetcar. And they're hanging all the meat inside the streetcar, and those uh, pigs' heads and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know sides of uh, sides of beef and everything else. It's it's it looks like a butcher shop, and then. On to the streetcar gets a drunk uh, local uh, nobleman, who sits down and looks around and just looks. At this streetcar he's on at midnight with nothing but but hogs heads and and all kinds of meat hanging. He shakes his head. He gets up and leaves. That's that's incredible. You know, I thought it was really funny, and it was, visually it was just astounding. But it's just played absolutely straight.
2: Yeah, that's the thing about the 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 physical grotesque that a the, the what's the most famous scene in Ushan Andalu*? It's the, the eyeball, yep. yeah, the eyeball and the knife—the greatest, the first party match cut um, ever, probably. And uh, and then of course you have the decomposing cattle on top of the piano, mm-hmm. um, and you you could find these these kind of images probably the the precursor of horror cinema coming into play. You know the um, the grotesque is, is is questioned, and you see this also with Alejandro, and of course. Um, with del Toro, and then its influence to horror.
0: Yeah, well, and I also think the one genre that we didn't mention that I think is uh, uh, certainly an ancestor of magic realism, which Guillermo del Toro has separately tapped into. I feel like to a degree in The Devil's Backbone, but definitely in Crimson Peak, is gothic storytelling. Um, gothic is a is a. It's related to horror um, primarily through its uh, aesthetic, I think. Uh, It's obviously romance and it's about death, but it certainly leans heavily into uh, that sort of fever dream nightmare aspect of surrealism and also that sort of idea of the, the, uh, the one strange, usually frightening aspect of the other. Uh, that that pops up in those kinds of stories seems to be related in some ways to th- the strange thing in magic realism as like well.
2: Victorian Gothic, you're referring to that period, like, right? Yeah, you know, it's like like the like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that you have these parts that are like put together um, to create life. And and think interesting about uh, Gothic horror, or at least the Victorian sense that this um, this they're at odds with both the old and the new, like new science versus old beliefs. And it's also an era where it's already a couple hundred years um, post-discovery of the New World, and I think you see a lot of like Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde, like those kind of dualities are finding their way. So horror does have some kind of magical real lineage. You could argue even goes it predates um, other, you know, you know, other dates.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and I say this all the time uh, when I talk about the idea of liking genre. Um, usually, we're talking about the, you know, the window of like science fiction, horror, fantasy, in this case, I think magical realism, oftentimes those genres are the ones that get the most easily dismissed because they're the ones that are the least realistic. And the thing I like the most about them is that they're in some ways able to have far more honest conversations than real genres can because of the fact that we can disguise something as something else that we're more comfortable talking about. And that's something that, in Mary Shelley, they're talking about the idea of death and life after death, but they're doing it in a literal sense by just making it a body, right? Right. As opposed to talking about each of us individually. And so... One of the powerful things about, I think, magical realism is, like we said earlier, the idea of taking this one thing and othering it in an otherwise normal world allows us to sort of create this pinpoint focus where we can allegorically talk about something really important without ever really naming what it is.
2: Right. It's a, a fear of the other. You know, it is, it's it's it's. I don't even know if it's embracing the other, but it's maybe accepting the other in a certain way into the yeah. reality. Well, horror yeah. h- historically is fearing something you don't understand what it is. And for them, they understand that it, it's different, but they're 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 letting it settle
0: into the reality. Right. It's maybe not embracing it, but at least accepting its reality as right. existing. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. Well, so if we uh, just out of curiosity, before we start to wrap up and, and talk a little bit about mascot TV, was there a film in in all the conversations that we had here, and then in all of the research that we did, is there one that jumps out at you that you're like, of these three guys, here's the title that I feel like a most captures what i feel about magic realism but also is maybe a really accessible film hmm. for someone who hasn't watched any of these before um, and i'll go first if you want um, i think that uh... guillermo del toro's pan's labyrinth is a really solid film to, uh, to first of all, completely understand Guillermo del Toro as a filmmaker. I think it's possible, though, All of, a lot of his films talk about his life and his experience. I don't know that there's been one that's more concentrated to understand who he is as a person, but also I think this film's really good at juxtaposing, like I said, the mundane and the fantastic. The idea of this uh, fantastical world that in some cases is literally side by side. Moments in the frame where she's talking to a fantastical creature, and then she's talking to the general of the Spanish army, you know, moments later. In the same space, uh, it really speaks to that idea we're talking about, about this fantastical element existing side-by-side side in real time with this mundane reality. Uh, so that would be my pick. Well, they eventually blend, too. I, right. They come together at the end in a very real way.
1: Yeah. you know,
0: And, the, and, and the, I think the magical thing about that is, uh, like we talked about the idea of ambiguity, the end of that film can mean two things. It can mean she did what she was supposed to and she gets to go to the kingdom. It could also mean that as she's dying, she's having this fantasy of what it is she believes she achieved because that's the only way that she can um, live with the reality of everything that's happened, you know, so it's a, a, a break in her mind and that's the, the mundane explanation or there's the fantastical explanation, which is she accomplished the thing and she's the princess in the in the kingdom now, you know, so there's that still that ambiguity that comes with magical realism, which is we're not giving you the answer, you know, right, right. figure out on your own. It comes with. very
1: close to doing it with the chalk. Yeah, well,
0: and he, yeah. I mean, Guillermo del Toro says that he believes that that yeah. world is real. But, I mean, just within the confines of the watching of the film, there is enough for a skeptic to be able to believe that it's yeah. not happening. When he's
2: drugged up, he doesn't, and that's when it happens, right, when he, um, when the general, I forget his name, Vidal, right. um, he's sedated in a way. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he sees the world a little differently, and he follows her into the labyrinth. It's the only time where he's in, he's almost part of Ophelia's world. That right. He, he's aware, cognitively aware of what's somewhat
0: happening it's yeah like he kinda, still
1: can't see the uh, he yeah, still the can't on. see it yeah yeah, yeah. and I,
0: this uh, that can't be unintentional Guillermo del right. Toro obviously wanted to make sure there was enough wiggle room for you to you know feel like you don't know but anyway so before we wrap out Tom what do you think is there a title
1: well, <clears> done <throat> done? The, of all the things I watched or have watched I would just say uh, I love uh, Buñuel and I love The Exterminating Angel alright I just think that's a it's a great movie they can't leave the room they're at a, uh, people coming, returning from the theater, and uh, you know, upscale, uh, uh, walking into a mansion, they walk in, and the servants greet them. They leave, and pretty soon there's another knock on the door, and the servants open the door, and they come in again. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, this is this is going to be fun. And of course, when they find out they can't leave the room, uh, it uh, it it degenerates into. Barbarism. Yeah, almost. Chaos. yeah. Mm.
0: smashing the walls yeah. open to
1: get water. Yeah. yeah. Slaughtering goats. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. It's fantastic. Very nice. What about you, if there's one that you would recommend? Well,
2: I mean, it's hard not to ignore um, Pan's Labyrinth. I and mean, I think we talked enough about Pan's Labyrinth. But uh, if there's one that's um, stepping away from Latin American, um films or even um, writing i think the purple rose of cairo by oh, wow. woody allen is a wonderful example of magical realism for those who don't know the story it's about a woman mia farah who goes to the theater and sees her favorite film every night almost every night uh, because she's stuck in this very you know you know very uh, depressed marriage and she finds her escapism like many of us do we go to the movies to escape our reality and all of a sudden the film comes to life and the characters she's in love with in the film um, which is who's the actor? Uh, um, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels comes out of the film and comes into the reality, and then all of a sudden, the characters in the film recognize what's happening, and they too are envious of him escaping. And this wonderful, you know, story about the, you know, the, 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 the other. Um, the other surreal world that we know, it's film. Film is all non-reality. You know, it's not really real. Right. And this kind of uh, element of the, the real and the unreal coming into play and a much very subtle and almost neorealist kind of element to it.
0: Yeah, and it even toys around with the mundanity of it too because the actual actor who's nowhere near as interesting as the character he plays ends up coming into the story. And so you get to see that interesting juxtaposition of Jeff Daniels, Hollywood actor, versus... The character that he plays on the big screen right. which I think is a pretty interesting perspective um okay so as we wrap out as we always do until next week uh we want to leave you with a few recommendations uh about mascot tv they uh, this month i was lucky enough to be able to program triple features of all of uh all horror related stuff that's running all the way through to the 31st which is only a couple of days away but we have three nights worth of triple features still left so, I just want to let you know if you go uh, to, it's on Roku, it's on Apple TV, or you can watch it online. If you go to Mascot TV, every night at 9 o'clock, there's a triple feature. Do you want to mention which one's for tonight, the 29th?
1: Well, it's uh, uh, Carnival of Souls, is the standout. Yes. That's really a great film. Uh, the Amazing Mr. X, I think it's with Turan Bay. I believe that is correct. And I have not seen that, so I may tune in tonight. Yeah. And, uh, and that's your first that one, out. so that'll start at 9. And I Bury the Living with uh, Richard Boone. Yes.
0: Yeah. Directed by Charles Band's father, uh, Charles Band, famed of uh, the creator of Puppet Master and a lot of the um, uh, yeah a lot of a lot, lot of the directed video stuff from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, his dad yeah. made this film,
1: yeah, and it's not a bad film. No, it's, it's, it's actually good, it's very so good. good. Yeah. Good. Uh, so
0: that's the theme of that one is speaking to the other side, yeah. right? So it's talking about the other side. Um, the follow up date, October thirtieth, is Terror in the Seventies and it's got a couple of fun titles Silent Night Bloody Night also known as Death House it's kind of fun It's, I mean it's a little bit cheesy but uh, you're not going to find anything that's going to be completely cheese free on Mascot TV that's part of our ethos I think so um, and then the one that you like the alternate
1: title to The Picks <laughs> uh,
0: what was the alternate title Tom?
1: The Hooker Cult Murders yes, of course I would watch that yeah, maybe that, not The Picks but I would watch The right hook, that the popular cult family thing, yes. that family film yeah I think so and then
0: Horror Express aka Panic in the Trans-Siberian Train which is a uh, non-Hammer film starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing about terror that takes place on a moving train with Telly Savalas. That's a fun one. And then the way that we wrap out the month, October 31st, who better as the grandfather of horror to wrap out Halloween than Christopher Lee? So we do a triple feature for Christopher Lee. And I'll even say, aside from City of the Dead, End of the World, and Circus of Fear, a.k.a. Psycho Circus, (laughs) there might be some other Halloween treats that we didn't advertise that will be popping up on our night. So it might be a little bit more than a triple feature. I'll stay
1: home. I won't go out trick-or-treating. I'll stay home and watch Mascot.
0: Lights off. Don't bother coming by for candy. Popcorn so uh, so thank you to mascot TV for sponsoring the show thank you to UT and especially thank you Hector for coming in to talk to us it's a thank fascinating you. conversation It's great and uh, you know open to our policy to come back uh, it's been a, it's a, been a great conversation I know the audience appreciate it and so do we. So until next Tuesday, uh, all of you monster lovers out there, thank you for tuning in. And uh, feel free to, tr- to follow us on Twitter, I should mention. At Little Movie Bits is the Twitter feed. It's uh, Monster Movie House's uh, official feed. So check us out over there, and we'll keep you posted on when we have new guest announcements so you can find out who's going to be on the show. And we will see you next week.